Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. For most of this year, the Chinese currency, the yuan, has been struggling to hold ground against the mighty US dollar. In fact, in November 2023, the yuan fell to a 16-year low. At the same time, there's been an outpouring of foreign capital from China. Some $75 billion exited the country in September, according to Goldman Sachs. The effort to improve China's economic and financial reputation is being led by Xi Jinping himself. But what can he do to address the concerns of investors? Joining me to consider the dilemmas facing the Chinese policymakers is a leading expert on China and its economy. George Magnus is a research associate at the SOAS China Institute and also at the University of Oxford. George, thanks for once again taking part in China in Context. Well, thank you for having me, Duncan. Well, shall we start with the currency markets? I said just now that the yuan's fallen to a 16-year low against the US dollar, and that's been the case for much of this year, although I have noticed considerable fluctuation. My understanding is that the central bank, the People's Bank of China, is making a determined effort to try to keep the currency steady. Can you explain what the central bank is trying to achieve, please? It's been a bit of a rocky ride for the uh, for the yuan. I think it's uh, uh, depreciated. I mean, it's, which doesn't really move very much, right? Because the People's Bank of China has a prescribed limit, narrow limit, within which it's uh, normally prepared to see the currency fluctuate. So, um, when it moves by fourteen percent in a downward direction, which is really what happened between March of last year and the first part of this year. Um, that's quite an extraordinary event. And I think it did rattle the central bank and the financial authorities. The backdrop to it really was, you know, continued leakage of capital abroad, loss of confidence or lack of confidence, I would say, in um, the Chinese currency. Um, but I think um, in answer to your question directly, what is the People's Bank of China doing now? It's it's basically refixed the yuan dollar rate. Uh, I wouldn't say that lightly, but someone is obviously quite active in the market in trying to keep the currency pretty much on a deadpan level reading. So I think they've had enough of the depreciation. They don't want it to go any further. They've actually refixed it, which is something that they haven't really done for many, many years. Well, you say that uh, China may have had enough of currency depreciation. However, there could be some benefits to the economy from a weaker yuan. And yet, at the same time, it doesn't send a very encouraging signal to the markets, does it? No. Well, the uh, I mean, the benefit really of a, of a weaker Chinese currency is really for Chinese exporters. They're not very kind of high up in the priority rankings about who needs assistance. I mean, what, what China really needs is a stronger currency, actually, to make imported goods cheaper for its consumers. The economy is quite weak because there isn't really very much consumer demand or not very strong consumer demand in China. So actually, a strong currency, which would make imports cheaper, uh, would actually help that. A weakening currency is uh, not good for the domestic economy in China, but of course, it does help Chinese exporters. But at the same time, what that does also is create a lot of trade tension between China and um, some of its trade partners, you know, particularly one would think uh, 
let's say the United States, you know, might be watching this very closely. Well, let's look a little bit more broadly then at the economic situation. I can remember at the start of 2023, many people told me that they thought the Chinese economy was going to be a global star. They pointed at that time to rising interest rates in the US and indeed in the Eurozone, very high inflation in both of those places. And people were saying to me, look, China doesn't have those problems. In fact, there's pent up demand post COVID. So China's bound to bounce back dramatically. And yet here we are towards the end of 2023. And we've got the Chinese central bank wading in to support the yuan, as well as widespread concern about the whole trajectory of Chinese growth. So what's going on? And there was a lot of um, kind of quite frenetic discussion about, you know, the Chinese economy is collapsing, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, it wasn't really. I mean, it wasn't doing very well, but it wasn't collapsing or imploding or doing any of the other things that, um, you know, the, that were being talked about at the time. Um, and it has, to be fair, probably stabilised now because the government has taken a number of measures to try to um, stop the rot, shall we say, in the housing market, which is one of the big uh, drags on the economy at the moment and prospectively. Um, they've also kind of brought forward um, the permission for local governments to uh, borrow money. Um, they've um, announced um, uh, something like a sort of a 0.8% of GDP uh, central government uh, authorised borrowing programme. So they're doing quite a lot to try to stabilise the economy. And I think they're probably will pull it off this winter. But what's going on really is the pent-up demand only showed up momentarily in January and February of this year, when people were allowed to congregate and go to eating out uh, hospitality places, uh, which had previously obviously been uh, banned under the zero COVID regulations. But that didn't really extend to sort of hardcore consumer spending like housing, automobiles, expensive consumer goods and so on. The income growth of households is really quite weak. Well, thank you. Um, let's talk about Xi Jinping's role in all of this, George. Uh, he recently appeared at the Financial Work Conference. Now, that's a fairly boring sounding meeting, but it was quite important, I think, because there were some key policy issues that were talked about. And it was interesting because when I read the reports of the conference, I must admit I didn't read the minutes of all the, all the committee meetings, but the general view was that this conference had been a chance for the Communist Party of China to tighten its grip on the financial sector. What did you make of it? Yes, that's, that's precisely so. And this was flagged in very kind of stark terms at the National People's Congress earlier this year, where a new financial architecture for regulation really was announced. It's under the very careful and close control of the party. And that's effectively what's happened is that financial regulation has been pretty much centralised and is much more now under the control and um, uh, supervision of the party. Um, obviously, there are new bodies, not all of which are political, some of which are uh, administrative bodies that actually carry out um, the party's wishes. But um, but what we saw last month with the Central Financial Work Conference was the government effectively saying that finance is, um, I can't remember the exact term they use, like the lifeblood of the economy, something like that. Um, I think they might. I think they might have said it was a vital force of the economy. Yep, 
Okay, I'll accept that. Um, vital force, uh, and um, and I think because of the role that it has, and I think it is for China a sort of a national security issue. Financial stability is deemed to be a national security um, competence. Really, the party, you know, party controls everything, and so finance is something which has now kind of fallen under their uh, under the party's wing in much starker terms than it was before. And of course, yeah. the People's Bank of China, which was previously regarded as a sort of a more, when I say liberal, of course, this is all relative. Um, but the People's Bank of China has traditionally been regarded as more on the sort of reformist side of the kind of party's political consensus. Um, and, and the People's Bank has really had its wings clipped. It implements policy. It doesn't really make it. I think we should devote another podcast, actually, to looking at how the People's Bank of China interacts with the Politburo and other political organisations. But let me just uh, read you something from the um, Financial Work Conference. I'll quote something. It said, we should be aware that all kinds of contradictions and problems in the financial field are intertwined and influence each other, some of which are still very prominent, and there are many hidden economic and financial risks. That's a fairly blunt warning, isn't it? What do you make of that? My takeaway on reading the reports of the Financial Work Conference, there was quite a lot about we're going to manage financial risk better. We're going to make sure that finance is provided for new industries and new technologies and all the kinds of things that you'd expect to see in a kind of a, a kind of a broad statement of intent, shall we say. But the main message, I think, is that they are, or the party is still concerned about and worried about financial instability. And I think that's what that quote that you read out actually speaks to. What they're worried about, really, is about, uh, specifically, they're worried about local governments, uh, because many local governments are well past, you know, the point of kind of prudential levels of indebtedness, where some actually can't afford to pay uh, interest on their debt. And the government has a very kind of urgent task, really, to try to bring uh, local government debt back under control. Um, they've sent inspectors out to many local governments. They're looking at possibilities of restructuring uh, some of the local government debt, which is to say to refinance it at longer maturities and with lower interest rates. But I think that's really what it's about. And also the unknown perhaps or you know risks that they feel might be lurking out there because of what's going on in the real estate market which is obviously much much bigger in terms of size even than local government debt real estate is used as collateral by banks and borrowers uh, even when there's no kind of land involved or no real estate involved and of course you know the one thing that china would not want to happen would be uh, for a kind of acceleration of uh, bad debts in, in the real estate market that might reveal a connectivity of, of financial contagion risk between financial institutions. So that, that's really what this is about. Several guests on this podcast have talked about China building new pillars to support its economy. They've mentioned technology, advanced manufacturing, the green economy, there's talk of a transformation, even of building a whole new set of foundations, actually, for China. How do you see things developing? Well, there's, there's no question. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping has uh, made quite clear that he sees China's future as, as bright, of course, 
and he sees it uh, defined in terms of what he calls new productive forces. So new productive forces really are the industries and sectors that are at the frontier of new science and technology. So, you know, we think about electric vehicles and batteries, the green economy, you know, solar and wind, hydrogen maybe, and, uh, you know, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, um, developing, you know, China's own semiconductor um, industry or moving up the scale of, of trying to catch up um, Western linked uh, semiconductor manufacturing and so on. So this is all grist to the mill. It's kind of what, what we'd expect. It's the kind of thing that China wants to do, wants to become less reliant on um, supplier, foreign suppliers as, you know, it's the same kind of thing that we hear in uh, the United Kingdom, US and Europe and so on and so forth. Um, the trouble, I think, in, in China's case is, since we're talking about China here, is that these uh, sectors, certainly for the foreseeable future, are nowhere nearly big enough to compensate for what's going on in real estate and in uh, the rest of the economy. The boring bits of the economy, like wholesaling, retailing, uh, transportation, things that never really make the front page, right? So a generous estimate of new productive forces in China's economy is maybe somewhere between about five and nine, five and 10% of GDP. I mean, according to the kind of well-known and digested estimates of real estate now, you know, real estate is 24, 25% of GDP. So it's important. Um, and, you know, in much the same way as, you know, 40 years ago, Japan was in the forefront of its you know, the technological revolution at the time with Sony and, um, you know, Mitsubishi Industries and Hitachi and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, it didn't actually, wasn't enough to actually allow Japan, you know, to succ not to succumb to big sort of macroeconomic risk. And I think that's the issue uh, with China. We should, I mean, we should welcome it and certainly it would be churlish not to acknowledge, you know, the uh, advances which they are potentially making in, in some of these new industries, but it's not really going to compensate for uh, what's going on elsewhere in the economy and for the diffusion of those technologies to, to other sectors that uh, require real kind of changes in institutional relations to make that happen. Well, thank you, George. You've made some important points there and left us much to think about. And your analysis is right up to the moment and very topical, so thanks for that. That was George Magnus, Research Associate at the University of Oxford, and also at the SOAS China Institute in London, which makes this podcast. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.